Jason. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing great. Woo, here we are. So, you know, it's um, it's good to be back. It's really good. Like, I feel like that COVID thing, I didn't realize how like, crappy I felt. Even after I felt better, I still wasn't better. But now I feel fine. I'm not coughing anymore. Uh, yeah. I saw your wife was making that, that egg thing in the little tray, in the special little tray. Oh, the, like the, 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 the Tamago style yes. eggs where you like roll and the eggs up. I've never yes. seen it made before. And I was sitting there, wa- I was mesmerized by this. I was watching. I was like, so I, where, that's where how she, they uh, do it. Where did she post that? Instagram. I see. Uh, yeah. I, I, one of my daughters was taking a video of her doing that because she was wanted to take a video for school or something. And I guess they posted it there. That's- I've always, always, always wondered, you know, how that was done. How they get in the perfect little shape and everything. There's a, a special pan for it. Right. Yeah. And then you're you're putting it at sort of a crepes, you know, sort of level of thinness, if right. you will. But yeah. And then it yeah. just folds over and over and over on itself. And you get this beautiful, perfect, like almost rectangular egg. Uh, that you can nicely slice and everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. Um, I want it so bad. I got to go get one now. Well, as you can imagine, I have ready access to it. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we just have uh, Tamago on demand in uh, the Hoffman-Kim household. <laughs> it's nice. Looking forward to so, my invitation, breakfast invitation, or brunch. I'll do brunch. You have a standing invite, you know Okay. That. Yeah, you have a standing invite. Cool. Uh, but, the, uh, but you're feeling uh, over- from the, the COVID. Yeah, I feel like this, you know, like it was the, well, it's not like it was a long COVID. It was just a long yeah. COVID, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, as, as, I mean, as we've discussed, I mean, there's always, uh, it's like the, the classic thing where for many people, by the time they even show up at a, a hospital, not feeling well, right? they don't really have a viral disease anymore. They have a um, pulmonary issue or a right. vascular issue sure. or an inflammatory issue or some combination of those three things. And it's just your body trying to do what it does uh, to clear these things out. But, um, um, and we saw the same thing in, of course, cancer research 20, 25 years ago, where you begin to realize that the spreading of cancer and its growth is actually fueled by normal inflammatory cells, you know? So uh, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of disease processes that are fundamentally related to our, our inflammation system. So, and of course we survive the environment that we live in because of that inflammatory system too as well. Yeah. So it's got positive sides to it, but negative sides to it and sort of riding that balance is uh, really important to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So what do you, I mean, what's next for you? This show. I mean, that's all I think about. I think if I wake up in the morning, I'm like, is it Friday? Am I doing the show? No. Okay. Then it's kind of a wash. I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. But are we going to, are we going to continue talking about COVID and Joe? No, I think we should talk about edge computing. And in fact, I I have some news 
that okay. we can go over. The first one is an article in the Register of Ooh. all of you know. I I know they're known for their hard hitting coverage Trolling. Yeah. of yeah. edge and cloud and technology in general. Uh, but yeah, here whichever. we go. An analyst predicts double digit percentage uptick in 2022. The big title is edge computing set for growth. That is when we can agree what it is. We're supposed to see double digit growth. It's predicting investments in edge will reach 176 billion in 2022, an increase of 14.8% over 2021. <laughs> I always find these, those predictions. So, uh, Boring. Well, this comes from IDC Research Vice President Dave McCarthy, no relation to Jenny. It yeah. says, edge computing continues to gain momentum as digital-first organizations seek to innovate outside of the data center. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of interesting. The diverse needs of edge deployments creating a market opportunity for technology suppliers. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's everybody's expectation here, you know, if I, if I wanted to be straightforward around, you know, quote unquote edge. Um, and this is a topic you and I, of course, have talked about, yes. you know, on the podcast. Uh, but I'd say that uh, if you look at most companies, they've developed a strategy around how they're going to use cloud and they've developed a strategy around how they're using software as a service. You know, Salesforce, Twilio, HubSpot, you know, these, these kinds of things. And then there's been all this other stuff. And in many ways, Edge is just becoming a very convenient top-level category to put all the other stuff under. And so you're starting to hear more companies talk about their cloud strategy, their SaaS strategy, and their edge strategy. Mm -hmm. So they can talk about those three things. So um, there's always this question of, is it is it new or not? Is it making something new or not? Are we just sort of recategorizing things? You know, so for example, when you sit and you say, okay, a long-term defensible definition of edge is cloud is when I go and put my stuff over there. Edge is when I keep it here. SaaS is when I consume it sort of at a higher level, right? And um, that's, that's, that's the core of what people are basically saying. So for example, this would mean that you can expect analysts over time to take a company's mainframe strategy and put it as a bullet point under their edge strategy, ironically. Um, you know, if it makes sense for something to stay on premise or stay in a known location with known things on it, um, that'll become part of people's edge strategy with time. And you'll find analysts lumping it together. Um, it doesn't answer the question of, are we actually creating new opportunities or are we creating a new market or, you know, what does it sort of look like? And so I think you'll find a lot of that. <coughs> excuse me, this idea that edge at its most core technical definition is location and topology-specific cloud computing. 
that anytime you need to take these types of cloud concepts and architectures um, and do it in a known location with a known network topology on top of it, people are going to call that edge. And so that's all it is. And then um, they'll start categorically moving things under there. And so, you know, the good news is I think from an analyst standpoint and people that do strategy and everything else that you can sit down, you can, in fact, do your cloud strategy, your edge strategy, and your SaaS strategy. You have those three, and you can comprehensively talk about it. And, you know, categorically, you're in a, you know, a minimum three legs for your stool to stand on. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Because people like to talk about things in the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. (laughs) Like, you know, you know, I mean, they, 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 you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm not going to sit around and say everything's one thing or, you know, it's black or white or, you know, it's up or down. But anytime you move into Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it plugs right into this human brain of, you know, it takes at least three points of contact for something to be specific. Right. Like we have this concept in order, you take organic chemistry when you look at the three dimensional structure of molecules, right? The second you have three points of contact between two things, you have the possibility of that being stereo-specific, meaning being specific to those that three dimensions connecting to one another, right? Mm-hmm. And so anytime you look at having some three-dimensional specificity when it comes to two things interacting, you need at least three points for that to occur. Uh, and I think that plugs into the human brain of, well, once we can sort of go and get to categorically three things... And everything can lump under those three things, then that's like a that's like an analyst's dream, right? Or a consultant's dream. Mm-hmm. You know, I could roll in and say, "Well, cloud strategy, let's evolve that. Your SaaS strategy, let's go and evolve that. But now let's actually take every all the other sort of shit that you do, and we're going to pull it under really sort of a comprehensive edge strategy. And then we're going to take these three things and talk about how the three things relate to each other. You're you are getting to the point now where you know." Um, if you're doing consulting in the space, you could have a framework like that that lets mm-hmm. you you do stuff. Um, the thing we all have to be careful of is what that means is when people start saying that Edge is going to grow the following ways or Edge is going to be this size or Edge is going to have this percent of growth, the, the, the assumption people often have when they do that is that that is starting from zero. Right. You know, meaning you could sit down and say that somebody like Amazon Web Services was net new offerings from Amazon that started from zero and then they grew that. That's very different than like what Oracle calls cloud, where they just recategorized things and started saying their cloud was growing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you have the same type of behavior now going on with Edge, people just recategorizing it and saying it's growth when there's in fact uh, not necessarily growth there um but i mean i find the idea that um it's unknown what it is it's just more that journalist having not spoken to somebody like myself that can tell them exactly what not doing enough research is what you're saying yeah i mean very very like you know caveman journalist Mm -hmm. so one of the things that was uh at the very end of the article that i thought was a little bit interesting and i'll I'll explain what I'm going to ask you about. Uh, but the quote here from the article, it's just saying, um, 
the real opportunities for edge computing could lie with the systems integrators, which have the relevant skills to pull together a solution from various component parts and provide services to support customers in operating it. And then there's another blog post that's linked that says the skill set of systems integrator engineers has never been in greater demand and that they are extremely well positioned to benefit from the era of change. And, you know, that's something that we don't get into talking about a lot. We talk about the bigger picture. We talk about the big companies that are issuing these big press releases. And one thing we don't talk a lot about is the actual people like in the field, the ones that are actually doing installations and things like that. You know, are those typically contractors or those people who are working into independent businesses that are deployed to from the bigger organizations or all of the above? All the all the above, yeah. I mean, you you can make an argument where, like, in the early days of cloud, people would ask me, like, well, where's where's enterprise cloud going to come from from a revenue perspective? What I would always say is, in cloud computing, there was sort of two fundamental sources of top line. There was the net new generation of revenue, meaning that revenue that you were not transferring from one company to another company because of a competitive environment, but this is actually new revenue to go after. In the cloud space, the new revenue that showed up was the scaling of Web 2.0 companies, the scaling of native mobile backends, you know, the scaling of social, you know, so, you know, meaning that stuff like Snap that runs on a cloud, stuff like all the Apple services that run on a cloud, these things did not exist in 2005. It was not just simply moving that revenue from one company to another. Um, you know, where you saw that. Um, so there was all this net new generation of revenue. Um, but then you also sat down and said, well, what companies were negatively impacted by the rise of cloud computing? And a very good example of this, even though they may deny it, is IBM. Uh, you know, IBM saw a decrease in their top line revenue. They saw revenue disappear from the company Mm. and um, it disappeared from those types of services. So I would say that for the appearance of cloud computing, while there were new service opportunities that emerged and there were new system integration opportunities that emerged and while there were new consulting opportunities that emerged, you know, just like how you have product companies you can have services companies too. When you look at the range of services, they range from consulting, meaning you're just suggesting what people do, uh, you know, to you doing it for them, right? Which may right. sit down and say, you could may call it system integration or value-added reselling or, or so on like that. And then you can sit down and say that um, um, people are even managing. So you have the managed services industry around these things and the like. Uh, cloud was very disruptive to the services industry, mm-hmm. which is something we don't talk about a lot. And um, and I think that uh, there was a lot of efficiencies there around um, moving from very system integration heavy things to much more sort of automated product based approaches. And so, you know, historically, there's probably some X percent of AWS's revenue that came from somebody sitting there and saying, well, you know, rather than me having my IBM team move my shit from this thing to that thing, I'm going to have these other people just put it 
onto AWS, or I'm going to have these guys, we're just going to move it from an in-house, you know, thing on a mainframe to a SaaS offering. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the big motivators for always doing that is that it's better, faster, cheaper. And so, you know, so naturally the rise of cloud was degrading to some existing system integration style businesses and that type of thing. But it also allowed the emergence of, you know, for example, a lot of the uh, uh, services companies that are based in, in Asia, you know, specifically India, mm -hmm. to rise up and start doing native cloud services around sort of X and helping people move to the cloud and, you know, a number of things like that. So there's also new opportunities that basically pop up. So it's difficult to, you know, if you looked at, say, the mobile industry where you have somebody like, you know, an Ericsson or Nokia that sells a product like base stations, but also then sells out rollout services of rolling out those base stations. You know, you have these things where if you have a lot of innovation on the product side, you can really bring the unit cost of that product down. You may go from, say, a $200,000 base station to a $2,000 base station but it still costs $20,000 to go install it. Mm. And you may still have to ma maintain it and that type of thing. Um, if you're starting to um, do something a bit innovative from a wholesale product perspective or so on, where maybe these things are already managed and pre-deployed and people can turn subscribers on and off, then naturally that type of SaaS offering, if you will, would go and degrade system integrator that's doing a rollout service. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to um, go beyond just sort of a blanket statement, if you will, and sort of say, okay, well, at the core, there's always going to be this interaction between product and services. And, you know, probably the, the, the core way to do it is just, you know, and sort of the jobs to be done, you know, type thinking. Uh, and, you know, meaning that a company is going to, has a job that needs to be done. And the question is, who's going to do that job? Is an employee at the company going to do that job? Is an employee at another company going to do that job? Um, and then what's the degree of automation and products that that person uses to do it? And do you eventually get to the point where it's all product-based and fully automated? But the reality is somebody at a company just needs something done. There's a job to do. And in the early stages, it may be manually done by somebody, but then it's more automated, automatically done by somebody. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that somebody may be entirely automated out. And there may be things where that person works for you or doesn't work for you or so on like that. And so in a lot of ways, the, the jobs to be done type framework provides a singular framework that you can go and look at this. And whether something is a product or a service or integrated or not or anything else is just part of a normal continuum like that versus, um, you know, that that sort of thinking, you know, if you will. And, you know, probably also from a, you know, if you're in something that's very services heavy, you know, I mean, you find these companies where if you look at some mix of what you'd attribute as like, here's human beings doing work versus here's software doing work, mm -hmm. you know, so sort of product versus services. You always find some mix as well that, you know, of course, 100% product companies are more profitable than 100% services companies. Right. Um, and then there's sort of a, a point in the middle where you, in fact, if you're 50-50 product and services, like, for example, this is where an Ericsson was, um, there's actually like a, a U-shaped curve there 
where the the worst profitable situation to be in is where 50% of your revenues from product and 50% of your revenues from services because you're not able to do a, an optimization around people and geographies and you're not able to do an optimization around product there's always some conflict you know in that and so oddly enough you can draw this curve where the most profitable situation is to be 100% product and then your profitability comes down as the services revenue increases and then when it hits about 50-50 it starts going up again but not as high, you know, so meaning like you can do, you know, high margin products, but you can't do high margin services, which makes sense when you think about it. Cause there's no, there's, there's sort of the, the hard cost of people, which depending on the country that you're in has real ramifications, you know, whether it's a unionized state or whether, you know, you know, I mean, that, that kind of thing that hiring somebody in, in, you know, Indonesia is very different than hiring somebody in Germany. Right. You know, for example, uh, and um, and uh, that that that's that's always a funny curve to show people because you literally like you imagine high profitability on product, then it goes down, 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 right? As you sort of do the mix of services on the bottom. Um, but if you sort of thought of an x-axis, it was like zero percent services on the left, hundred percent services on the right, or hundred percent product on the left, zero percent services on the right. And you just sort of look at that mix and the curve starts high, it goes down, bottoms out about 50-50, then comes back up again, but it only comes up about a third of the way up. So, uh, and companies are always playing along that curve in some ways. And, and, that, and that's, that's one of the most challenging dynamics is a bit of, okay, if we're 100% product company, but the adoption of what we do requires services for somebody to adopt it should we do and scale those services can we work with an outside partner that doesn't scale those services um is there conflict on it you know how do you actually maintain a very aggressive product strategy that actually continues to allow you to explicitly limit or eliminate your services revenue that may be a critical partner is dependent on you get where that that sort of starts becoming a problem, <laughs> and so and I, and I think that that's um, navigating that top line growth story and what comes from what from a mixed perspective and sort of what you're doing is probably one of the most common causes of an issue between a, a customer and their supplier, right? So, but yeah, interesting question. So then system integration, who the fuck knows? I don't know. Okay. It's going to depend uh, on um, stuff, but, but anytime you have product innovation, uh, the purpose is to eliminate services revenue. One thing that's, I think still connected to what we're talking about that I, it's actually really recent news like today. Um, NVIDIA was trying to acquire ARM and now they're not going to be able to do that. And of course, their fourth quarter results after the closing bell on Wednesday give people a little glimpse into what was going to happen. But there was this deal that officially is saying here in this article fell apart on February 8th. They had a $40 billion deal with SoftBank uh, meant to 
help them push more into the data center, developing their own CPUs, uh, which of course Intel dominates, AMD also very dominant in that space, and who knows, maybe one day Apple, but they kind of keep it to themselves. But NVIDIA may be entering into the CPU space, kind of a big deal. Um, and they're, they want to be the suppliers. They don't care so much about what's on your desktop. They want to be in the hyperscale data center. They want to be in one of those buildings and get their CPUs and GPUs in there. Um, yeah. But now apparently there was the, the ARM deal is gone. So NVIDIA's data center growth is even more important now. And they yeah. expect their data center sales to come in at 3.19 billion, which is a 68% gain from uh, a year ago quarter. That's a big jump. And I didn't know if this is something you've yeah. been, that's been on your radar or that you've been paying any attention to. Yeah, no, I I think, um, I mean, one, the videos of course has been doing great. I mean, by all, by all measures. Yeah. And um, in a lot of ways, the, um, the deal for SoftBank when it comes to having ARM acquired away from them by NVIDIA was becoming better and better by the day yeah, uh, because of the, the increase in NVIDIA's share price. Uh, because the, my recollection is the acquisition was, was not all cash. It was included some NVIDIA shares. So as those shares went up. And so, yeah, it was getting better and better and better and better. Um, I think... Um, I think the NVIDIA arm uh, ran into a regulatory environment that has been caused by um, sort of the FANG group of companies, you know, meaning more of the Facebook, Google style sort of... Um, regulatory pushback, you know, so you even saw in the UK, um, you know, the regulator there trying to undo some Facebook acquisitions. And you see, you know, those guys being pulled under sort of a greater scrutiny. I think there's a um, the sort of general regulatory environment right now seems to not be allowing M&A in the technology space. You know, I mean, it's under, it's under a greater scrutiny now than ever. Um, and I think on the counterbalance of that, to me, NVIDIA acquiring ARM was a great idea. Um, I mean, it would have been a really great um, IPR addition to NVIDIA. It would have really helped um, I think ARM as well. It was a good outcome for SoftBank. I mean, I think in the absence of the regulatory environment, the NVIDIA and ARM coming together just made a lot of sense. And I think it would have been a good thing for customers, you know, because often the whole issue around, and this is where a lot of the stuff around even the antitrust concepts start running into a problem is, you know, how do you sort of, take older antitrust regulations and apply it to scenarios where consumers are better off because of an acquisition, right? Because you could say that, 
you know, if Amazon goes and does something, but it results in lower prices for the consumer, what's really the problem? Right. Uh, or how do you go after somebody like a Facebook from an antitrust standpoint when their offering is fundamentally free mm -hmm. to a consumer? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have, um, um, I think, um, the United States government should have been very supportive of this deal. Uh, and they weren't. Uh, and I think that's a um, consequence of, I, I think it's, it's, they're basically, you know, this in the, in the U S my feeling is that this was roadkill hmm. in the broader concern around, you know, basically I think at the cornerstone of it is Facebook and I think the freak out there is a bit of the realization of how central Facebook is to um, the overthrowing of governments. <laughs> so, you know, it's like a little bit of, no, but, you, but if you stop and you think about it, I mean, you know, from the Arab Spring all the way up to, you know, Trump's election mm -hmm. um, and even sort of the, you know, the issues around, you know, the January 6th um, you know, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and call it an insurrection, January 6th insurrection, you know, 2020. Mm -hmm. um, you look at all that, all that's fueled by the social media. Uh, and we saw literally from the Arab Spring up, it's been, that's when it first occurred where, you know, back, because you recall back then we were talking about, you know, Facebook's impact on, you know, the population of countries. We're talking about it in a positive way because it was leading to the overthrow of, of these foreign governments, right? But then you start seeing elements of that type of division occurring here in our own country and people go, whoa, well, hold on a minute. You know, maybe these technology companies, quote unquote, are too powerful. But then I think that that same thinking then got applied to this deal. Now in this deal, what you had was a US-based company, NVIDIA, acquiring um, a, a company that grew up in the UK, mm -hmm. um, and that's why where arms, you know, history is, um, and um, you know, of course, you know, arm came from good old Acorn computers. You know, so literally the the name arm comes from Acorn Risk Machine mm. chips. Uh, you know, the the company was done you know, over forty years ago, and it was the people that made. Um, you know, the BBC micro, they made literally like, you know, the, B the BBC's little, you know, that, and, you know, sometimes you're called, you know, the, you know, the British Apple, you know, and that they sort of did, did that kind of thing like that. Um, and um, them actually being part of a U.S. company like NVIDIA would have been strategically very good for the United States, in my opinion, in that um, the three areas that we have to do well of, we have to do well as a country, is we need to be leading the world in semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't just be Intel doing that. Um, you know, we of course have Intel and, and AMD as a duopoly that was created by IBM because remember that when IBM went and did the Wintel thing and got chips from Intel they did require Intel to ha have a second source 
right? Which is the original reason why AMD even came into existence was just to have a second supplier to IBM of an x86 chip, right? So we have the Intel and AMD duopoly that you know was was basically created and is innovating along with it. We have then, of course, the innovation that occurs on the visual side of things, which the visual side of things and the way the math is done there plugs into machine learning and everything else. That's really what NVIDIA has been sort of cranking away and doing. Um, and then ARM has been the non-US example of this. But AMD, Intel, NVIDIA, US-based companies innovating in really sort of the hardware, the fundamental hardware aspect of it. It would have made a lot of sense strategically for the United States to have ARM as an asset of a U.S. company as well. Would have made a ton of sense. Right. Uh, and um, because semiconductors is something we have to continue to lead in as a country. And then the second thing, too, being that, you know, the fact that all the the current sort of lead efforts in AI and machine learning largely being done by Google and Amazon and Microsoft and that we have a lot of US companies that are continuing to lead this question of how do we how do we do a lot of machine learning around these data centric architectures and look like that that's a very critical thing for us to do as well and then you know probably the third is to have some country wide strategy around well, what's the likelihood of what, that happening? What, what, are we, what are we really doing from a communications and networking perspective? If you look there, for example, like in the mobile networking space, there are no telecommunications act of 1996 basically led to, and, and everything occurring in the U.S. operators led to the complete eradication of U.S.-based vendors you know, in that space. And that's yeah. entirely then done by a Swedish company, a Finnish company, and Chinese companies, uh, you know, sort of in that. Um, and I think for me... If we just look at a core technology strategy for the United States, and apologies to all the listeners that are not in the United States or you know aren't aren't sort of U.S., but this is this is the, your question is anchored in a regulatory sort of thing in there, is that you know from a United States perspective, having a very clear semi like leader in semiconductors, leader in network and communications, leading in you know machine learning and you know AI technologies. That you know, from this technology sector, those are those are critical things for us to continue to being the world leader in. Um, and uh, you know, I think the Nvidia arm would have made a tremendous amount of strategic sense for our regulators to actually make sure occurred here. Um, but they didn't, and then you know the other regulators piled on to that, and uh, you know this thing ended up largely. Dying because of that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. There's a new report. We've got time for this. There's a new report highlighting cloud-native migration challenges. So the migration to cloud-native brings large-scale shifts for the communication service providers, including move to microservices, standardized <laughs> access to microservices via API exposure, integration of multiple operational layers and domains for application management, and automation across the application lifecycle through the use of DevOps. So these are, the articles goes on to say that these are profound changes. Yeah. And I think they, but it goes are back to your original question. That? I mean, it doesn't like, this is just, that's just called work. No, I mean, but just, yeah, no, but you know what it is, is the, um, and this is where, 
Um, the profound changes is see what, again, people always treat this like some big mystery. Okay. And I think, are they profound changes? Yes. But not, not, not because of cloud. They're profound changes because your technical architecture always gets mirrored into your organizational architecture of your people, which then gets mirrored into your operational architecture, which gets mirrored into your financial architecture, which gets mirrored into how you procure and sort of everything else and how you run your supply chain. And so corporations do attempt to be efficient. And so what we realize is that the efficiency comes from many of these different architectures mirroring each other. When one of them changes, the others have to change as well, or you have to run multiple architectural tracks. So, you know, you, you as a, a software guy that does apps, it's a little no different than deciding to architect your, your, the next version of your app completely differently. You know, if you're going from like a Java-based app to Ruby on Rails, or you're going from this to sort of that, like when the technologies change uh, and when the architecture changes, that gets mirrored into every other architecture that exists. And so if you go up, I think the, the issue people generally have is when you think about a, a, a corporation executing well, when you think about a group of people executing well, um, you really have to think of the whole thing as a system. And that type of system-level thinking tends to be what's missing. If you move up a level, it should be obvious that changing your technical architecture will change the architecture and the structure of your development teams. It'll change what you outsource or what you don't. It'll change how you operate those applications and how you operate that infrastructure. It'll change into how you financially think about these things. It'll change how you run your supply chain and what you do from a procurement perspective. And so I think what tends to happen is you might have CEOs that are not necessarily well-rounded who then have executive teams that are broken up by function, meaning here's my technology person, here's my finance person, here's my sales person, here's my marketing person, and so on like that. And a CEO's job is supposed to be running this entire system where the efficiencies come from having, you know, essentially a work stream, if you will, where every every architecture of every subcomponent's lined up to be efficient. And um, and you know, you think about silly things where, oh, we need to migrate the cloud. Well, what we should do is if that's an if, if or you know we need to go uh, do a classic example. We need to go do a digital transformation. Okay, well if that's if you're an analog company now you're going to go digital. That has to be a CEO level thing, mm -hmm. and he's going to have a person, and it, uh, it's going to be another track. And then you're going to be thinking about how thing goes from one thing to the other, and you have to do these types of changes in a way without the the sort of without creating a ghetto in your company. You know, where you're sitting there and saying, oh, well, these are the new people that are innovating, that are taking the company, but the bulk of what we do needs to be done by you people. And then everybody that's there, I mean, you can, you can set up almost these two cultures, or one of the cultures just feels like shit the entire time because they're like dealing with this. So, you know, from a from a leadership perspective, I think it really is. Yeah, you want to do cloud native, fine. You have an architectural change, and so the question really becomes: What are the technical architectures that you have in your company? 
how are those reflected into the organizations that you the way your people are organized and who does sort of stuff like that? Uh, how does that feed into your financial structures? How does it feed into your supply chain? How does it feed into like all the sort of thing end to end? If you really think about it from a proper end to end perspective, then you can go and navigate something like this well. But I think that 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 type of end to end thinking of your company as a system, you know, where you have the reflection of different architectures throughout. Mm-hmm. And those things have to be organized for efficiency and effectiveness and, and, and sort of that perspective. That's, that's where the hard work basically shows up and where leadership is required. Microsoft is, and we talked about this a little bit last time, acquiring Activision Blizzard. You got all these acquisitions happening. Why do these things continuously come up in the space of edge and cloud, why are these a big of a deal? Is it because we're looking at, at Microsoft and what they're doing and how they're entering these different spaces or, or what, why does that come up in that sphere? Um, well, I mean, the best way to think about it is like the, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, to me, there's, there's, there's infrastructure that you have, and then there's essentially a way of distributing stuff and then the stuff is the content itself right and so you know a good example on this is that you're going and watching a movie and when you if you know how movies are made you know and funded but then you may have a distribution group like netflix which runs its own content delivery network that all sits on top of amazon and their own sort of stuff right you know you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so that content is static Everybody consumes and watches the same movie. And so, you know, if you're sitting there and everybody's got the same type of displays, the same type of devices, a relatively known range of them, they're all consuming basically different resolutions, but of exactly the same content that sits on exactly the same content delivery network that's delivering static content out to, you know, a range of devices, but everyone has the same viewing experience and it's one direction like that, then you have that whole sort of content world, right? If you just think of this from a content perspective, then you say, well, is there any content that's interactive? You know, like a classic way of thinking about this is a movie where you get to make a decision on what the next step of the movie is or how the plot moves. Like you put input in, right? Right. right. Well, the best example of where you're continuously putting input in and changing the plot of a movie is when people play games. That's what gaming is. Hmm. Gaming gaming is interactive, personalized content that technically then requires a bidirectional stream of data. Um, and as you can imagine, dealing with a unidirectional stream of data, if you have non-interactive, non-personalized, unidirectional stream of data content, that is different from interactive personalized bidirectional stream of data content, just just logically, right? Um, and gaming is one of the categorical examples of that type of interactive personalized bidirectional content. And so naturally it needs something that's different than just optimizing a video being sent to people at different resolutions, an image being sent to people at different resolutions. Uh, it's different. Right. And it's no different than somebody reading a static website versus somebody interacting with an uh, with a web app, right? 
And so a static website, as you know, can just run on one box and mm-hmm. doesn't require a lot of stuff and it delivers everything out. Right. Uh, a web app requires more infrastructure, right, Dan? Absolutely. And the more interactive it is, the more personalized it is, the more formal like this, then the larger of a, a data set and the more that person's workload needs to be broken out from other people's workloads. And so then there's greater infrastructure demands, there's greater performance demands, everything like that, right? And so you see a similar thing as we sort of transition from content delivery networks that are really around delivering static, non-interactive, non-personalized, unidirectional content into dynamic, interactive, personalized, bidirectional content. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a difference between being a quote unquote edge and being just a content delivery network or, you know, a network that sort of goes and does that edges are meant to be more computational and have more data capabilities and, 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 and the like. And, um, <coughs> and, uh, that, that's all that is. So, so to me, Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard is no different than, Netflix going and having its own content. So they're just basically sitting there and saying, well, we have infrastructure and we have a distribution network and then we have content on top of it and other people's content on top of it. And that infrastructure and that distribution network is evolving and scaling to a larger footprint so that we can handle things that are more interactive, more personalized, more bidirectional, more computationally intensive, more data intensive, more like this. And so as a result, we can handle a wider variation of content, too, that has those same characteristics. That's, to me, that's all it is. So, And you can say the same thing as we head into uh, all the metaverse stuff. What's that? Okay, well, that's just, again, interactive, personalized, a bidirectional stream of content that is now going to an entirely brand new display that's interacting with people in an entirely sort of like different way mm-hmm. like that. Um, but those people are tend to be sitting still and going and doing it. If people then go and go the next step where now they're going to be moving around in the outside world while doing that, well, you probably want to make the glasses see-through so that they can go here or there, or you have to be delivering them an experience that's the real world and the meta all together in sort of the following ways where it's real time, where they don't hurt themselves. And if you take the person out, now you say this is two fucking drones, or two cars, well, those two cars need to not run into each other. But again, like what I often try to do with these things, and it goes back to whether it be so many people sit around and do the classic, um, oh, it's all about how do you do the cloud native transformation? How do you go and buy this chip company? How do you sort of go and do this? And you say, well, maybe, maybe we flip this on the side and we structure it a little bit differently. And we ask ourselves, are these really discrete elements or are they all actually part of a logical continuum of a system that we just don't, we haven't sort of formulated. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so to me, if you sit around and you say, well, everything's content, a drone delivering a package is physical content, Uh, a self-driving car, driving your child, your child's content. Um, And, uh, and then you have a movie you watch on Netflix on the other end, that's content. Okay, your child in a car seat and a self-driving car on one end is content. That's sort of content. Mm-hmm. What adjectives do no, we want to use content? to this? What isn't content? Everything's content. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's literally, I mean, any, any, anything that you want to move from one place to the other. Yeah, but yeah, then you head into like everything's just matter and energy. Um, 
But you could sit around and you say, um, okay, well, what adjectives do I want to use to describe this content where as I go and say, as we said earlier, this is interactive, this is personalized, this is not interactive, this is not personalized. Are there things that are interactive that are not personalized? Mm -hmm. Are there things that are personalized but not interactive? Right. So you can go and basically put yes or no, zero or one in front of it, these adjectives. You can matrix them sort of basically out. You can put them in some type of continuum. And then you can sort of sit down and you say, well, what do people want? Uh, you know, sort of around that. And what's technically possible? And what does that sort of look? And, and very often when you go and you, because I, I hear this very like short termism all the time around, um, well, we got this technology then becoming this technology then becoming this. And each one of these is so disruptive. And you're like, if you flip it on the side and you think of it this way, you can predict all these fucking things. In fact, I can tell you what the next 30 years basically looks like. And so I think there, there is a, there's sort of a certain mindset where you actually have to think of these things very often where you say, these are not discrete things. These are just simply characteristics along a continuum of, hmm, what is that? Um, and uh, I mean, a great example is like people talk around when people talk about hardware and software as these somehow two disconnected things. Oh, software is eating the world. You know, hardware is doing like that. But it's like, it's like there's no fucking situation in the world of you can't you, like you can't use hardware that doesn't have software on it, or you, you can, but you know what that's called? It's, a, it's called like a hammer. <laughs> a hammer is an example of hardware that doesn't have software on it. <laughs> that's a okay, good example. Yeah. But there's no example of software that doesn't have hardware. It's true. Right? I mean, maybe you could say that's what pure energy or pure light is. I don't know. I mean, but, but no, that's, that's, that's got a physical explanation to it, too. So it's, that's hardware, too. Okay, well, shit. Right? But there's no example. So you sit around and you say there's always going to be hardware and software, and the interactivity between those two things. So what do you need a long-term strategy around? You don't need a long-term software strategy or a long-term hardware strategy. You need a long-term strategy around the interactivity of these two. So you can sit and say, are there things that we're going to have to do in software that the hardware can't support? Well, that's probably some higher-order thing that you can construct by using these lower elements, but it's not going to be offloaded by the hardware, so it's not going to be efficient. But then if we're doing it a lot, we can now have the hardware offload it and now make it more efficient and just keep on going down, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the process is. Anytime you have some repetitive computational task in software that is not being offloaded in the hardware, the next step in the hardware roadmap is to fucking offload it. So you have like that work stream of stuff. And then you also sit around and you say, hey, let's make hardware that doesn't exist, that allows certain computational things to be possible that aren't possible today. Case in point, quantum computing. Right? Yep. You know, and so, you know, it's, 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 um, I encourage people whenever somebody tells you these things are not related and we're being disrupted and I don't understand, you know, what they're really basically saying is I'm just not thinking about it in the right way. And maybe there's a different way of thinking about it where I flip it on the side, I flip it on its head, I turn it inside out. I think of it not as these discrete things, but actually as a continuum. 
you know, what what nouns, verbs, adjectives am I basically using? What qualifiers am I using on sort of here and there? And, and as you know, as a software guy too, it's like this is the process you go when you're going and trying to create a hardware software system anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just encourage people to go go through, like if you've ever been on a product team where you sit around and you say, let's make some software that's never existed. What hardware is available for us to do it? There's limitations to that. What hardware should we now make exist to sort of go and do it? People that do that type of work understand this. But most people don't do that type of work, so they don't understand it. And then what they end up doing is categorizing it in these these very sort of, you know, black and white and gray ways and, you know, that somehow, you know, like coffee's not a drink. You know, it's this other fucking thing that's not related to water. I mean, you know, I mean, no, but but you have these like it's very it's very bizarre. Like, you even go back to the the register article you were talking about. Mm-hmm. We well, have this or that. Okay, but those aren't. That's not like up and down. Those are like two unrelated things, right? How the fuck? How the fuck are they supposed to be related? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you even trying to do? What you're trying to do is you're sitting down at the keyboard, you know, and you, you're getting paid a little bit of money to write 600 words. So you just spit out 600 words. You post it up. You're good. You like move the fuck on, but you haven't thought about it. Sorry, that's semi-insulting. No, it's all right. To whoever wrote that no, article that I didn't actually read. It's fine. Fuck that article. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on, which was in that article, is oh, an image right. I'm going to send you. Uh, I don't know whether this goes to your day phone or your night phone or your offensive phone or your defensive phone. But that shows telco versus big tech before and during the pandemic. Are you able to see that image that I sent to you? Yeah. So uh, to summarize for the listener, Microsoft Corporation, Amazon, and Meta platforms, very excitedly seeing growth, big growth. These are in the, this is in the share price. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then Verizon and AT&T is essentially the same before and during. Yeah, but I've said this before. So the funny part is... Um, Verizon and AT&T should never be used. Verizon and AT&T are companies that should be used to talk about Verizon and AT&T. You shouldn't even talk about Verizon as a way to explain AT&T. You should never even talk about AT&T as a way to explain Verizon. And you shouldn't talk about either of those two telcos to explain telco or mobile networks or Mm -hmm. any other telco in the world. They are singularly fucked in their own ways. Mm. And so, you know, it's one of these... No, it's true. Um, because where, where's T-Mobile U.S.'s in that one? Uh, what period of time are you looking at? Five years? Oh, let's, one let's, year? Let, well, the, this chart that I sent you goes back from... It goes back to... 2017. 2017. We could look at 2017. I would even say okay, 2018. Okay, so I'll tell you right now. So in February 2017... Uh, T-Mobile was at uh, $63. Okay. And then it's at uh, $144. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, isn't that 200, isn't that 200%? Sounds like it. Yep. So it would sit up right there with Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, wouldn't it? It would. So why do you think that they're highlighting only AT&T and Verizon? Just to try to demonstrate 
sort of bias. the bias. I mean, here's the fine part. Situation. You have Microsoft, Amazon, Meta there. Okay, you have those three. And if they did Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile US there, then T-Mobile US would look, it would be in between Amazon and Meta. So it didn't, it didn't argue their point. So they left it the fuck out. Or for some fucking reason, mm-hmm. people think Verizon and AT&T somehow reflects the industry. When they don't, those two companies are uniquely challenged, have a unique history, and, and everything else. Right? Do you understand yeah, what I mean? Yeah, why yeah. would you leave out, you know, if you're going to take three tech companies, why wouldn't you take the top three operators the top three, in the pull country? The top three. And why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you show the one that's successful? Well, because why it doesn't, doesn't prove your argument if you do that. I guess, yeah. Yeah. I mean, T-Mobile US has been crushing it. Absolutely crushing it. From a subscriber perspective, from sort of everything else. And like, why is that? Well, because, you know, They've been, you know, I mean, well, people can read it on their own, but I mean, they've been focused on growing subscribers and they've been focused on running a a good consumer business. You know, they haven't made forays into owning content or what's our enterprise story going to be or any of that sort of shit. They just stayed focused on let's go be number one and what it is that we do. Um, I mean, Verizon AT&T in a lot of ways lost, you know, they sort of, you know, took their eye off the ball. Because they were like number one. You know, when you're like number one and you're like, geez, how are we going to grow? Well, maybe you can't grow. Okay, so you're not going to be a growth stock. Why is that? Well, because, you know, you're a mature company. And the, like, remember Verizon and AT&T, if you put the two together, you have old AT&T. Yes. They're part, right. they're part of the same company back right. when we were kids. Yep. Um, okay, well, I'm sorry to say that, you know, you're, I don't know. You got broken up in a particular way that those two companies are always like counterbalancing themselves in weird ways. You understand what I mean? Yep. And so they just are what they are. Like their history is their history and the way they are, it's the way they are and their challenges are their challenges. There's nothing extrapolatable from Verizon and AT&T to the broader industry, in my opinion. And to leave off like the T-Mobile US story there, whatever. But I guess that's not sexy. Not as interesting. Yeah. So, but what's that article that had that picture in it, that graphic? Uh, that was, that is in our show notes. People can go to livingontheedge.show yeah. slash 20 and they can see those links here. And I'll, I'll send you that one in just a moment so that you can see it personally. But uh, it's, I don't, I don't, you don't care. So people want to get in touch with us, Jason. They're going to go to Living on the Edge show slash contact. There's a little form there. They can fill it out. And also, you exist on Twitter. You're Jason H. I'm at Dan Benjamin. And uh, and that's it. And we've got we've got some really cool stuff. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spill the beans yet. But uh, we've got some guests coming up. We're going to be doing some video stuff. Big, big stuff happening. Big moves being made. Can you handle the big moves? I can. Okay. Well, I hope our audience can, too. That's it. That's all we got for this week. Thanks very much to you, Jason. Talk to you. Talk to you next week. Bye, Dan. Mm-hmm.